This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We had agreed beforehand mm -hmm. that we would never tell anybody and that we would never talk about it outside of our group for the rest of our lives. I'm Damian Bulwa, and this is Fifth and Mission. That voice you heard was Ralph Daniel. He's in his 70s now, and he lives a quiet life in San Rafael. But 50 years ago, he was a young anti-war activist and participated in one of this country's most important burglaries. He and seven others broke into a small FBI office near Philadelphia, and they made off with suitcases full of documents. It was March 8th, 1971. The ensuing leak of the files would expose FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover's secret, now infamous program that spied on citizens. Daniel never got caught, and his identity has never been revealed. Until this week, because he's speaking to Chronicle reporter Matthias Gaffney. Matthias is my guest on the show. Matthias, what an incredible story for our listeners. It's at sfchronicle.com slash FBI robbery. And it's such a window into the politics of a whole era. How you doing, Matthias? Doing well, thanks. So Matthias, a lot of our listeners have probably not heard of this robbery at a small FBI office, but it was a big deal. Why was it such a huge deal? Well, I mean, this was uh, a really hot point in America's history. I mean, the Vietnam War is raging. Um, and this is, um, you know, at the time, the FBI and Hoover were pretty untouchable. And these files were stolen and unveiled as with a secret FBI that no one had known about where they're spying on individual citizens and um, particularly black groups who were um, very political and all of this was done simply for uh, main, uh, monitoring political speech. Nothing was um, uh, alleged to be illegal at the time, and they were uh, spying on uh, their own American citizens. These burglars, as you write, were not caught in the aftermath. And not only that, but they were able to somehow avoid detection for decades. Why was that important, and how were they able to do it? Yeah, I mean, uh, they kept the vow of secrecy. They told each other that... They wouldn't associate uh, with each other ever again after this mission was completed. And they went on their own ways. They moved across the country. Some stayed in the area. They got different jobs, never spoke about it to their families, to their friends, no one. And the case, you know, eventually was closed by the FBI a few years after the uh, a few years after the burglary and when the statute of limitations had run up. And so they held this for 50 years now um, as a secret. All right. They go about their lives, but let's go back to 1971, even before the burglary. Who's Ralph Daniel? Yeah. So Ralph uh, was born in Israel and moved at a very young age to New York. And he um, he said he was kind of uh, sparked, uh, what sparked his uh, radical side, if you will, was as a sophomore in high school in 1960, uh, Adolf Eichmann had been kidnapped from South America and brought back for trial. And Ralph was just fascinated by the whole thing and intrigued and thought the uh, effort that was taken, um, that's kind of, 
you know, not following uh, your normal paths really fueled his radicalism, he said. And he wound up going to the University of Wisconsin and got into anti-war activity there and then went to graduate school in Philadelphia. And that's where he started um, uh, participating in protests against draft boards and recruitment centers and picketing the war. And he just got um, drawn in to that whole anti-war protests and it took over his life. So he's in this world, but that's still far away from doing a burglary of this magnitude. What happened? How did he get recruited? Yeah, he he was participated in this one um, draft board caper where he, along with a bunch of other people, broke into two draft boards in the Philadelphia area in largely poor black neighborhoods. And they stole a bunch of the paperwork for um, folks who would potentially get drafted, tore it up, burned it and took responsibility for it. And from that, there was a physics professor who was um, someone who was very well known in the, in that um, community. And he was looking for people for kind of a bigger job. And he recruited um, Ralph and some others, and they started targeting, looking at a bigger target. Um, Ralph explains here in this clip how um, the first was to maybe target a CIA building. Initially, we started talking about maybe we should do something against the CIA because they're doing a lot of terrible things in the world and we thought even in the U.S. and maybe the FBI. So we, we looked at this. CIA had a recruiting office <laughs> and it was in a downtown office and we cased it and decided that, that we could never break in there <laughs> successfully and get away with it. Mm -hmm. And frankly, we were really scared that the CIA would shoot us. So they decided against the CIA building, but on March 8th, 1971, they did carry out an operation. Yeah, they chose that night because one of the biggest sporting events was planned in probably the history of the world, maybe. It was the first battle between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, and the entire world was planning to listen to it. That is one of the most exciting first rounds I think we've seen in a long time. And Frazier really is unrelenting. He keeps moving in. He hasn't given Muhammad Ali any chance to move around. And They'd been casing uh, this small FBI office um, in this little suburb of Philadelphia called Media, Pennsylvania. And uh, they'd driven by, mapped it out. One of the participants, um, Bonnie, she dressed as a Swarthmore College journalist student, um, pretended to be a reporter and interviewed the lead agent inside the office um, about recruitment of females into the bureau. And while she was there, kind of mapped out the interior of the office so they knew uh, what would be targeted. Um, and then so on the night, they knew that, you know, the entire country and world would be fixated on the broadcast and um, uh, telecast of this fight between um, these two legendary heavyweights. And it was great cover for them. All right. So they go in, they empty a lot of the file cabinets. They have a trove, as you write, of documents that they get out of there in suitcases. They look at the stuff. What did they get? Yeah, um, it was uh, a treasure trove. As they were looking at the files, they um, were getting an idea that a lot of it, um, you know, was targeting students in the area. There's a lot of colleges that surrounded that area. There was um, a lot of black activists um, that were targeted. Um, in this one clip here, uh, Ralph describes, you know, coming across all these cabinets full of just this incredibly incriminating material. 
Most of the files had to do with um, black groups and individuals um, who were involved in different political, liberal, and left um, groups. Um, there were a lot about different anti-war activists, and we took all those files. Let's take a quick break. More with Matthias Gaffney on Fifth and Mission right after this. We'll be right back after a short break. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bolwa, joined by Chronicle reporter Matthias Gaffney. Matthias, Ralph, Daniel, and the other burglars, they make off from the FBI office with all of these documents. What do they do with them? Yeah, they uh, get in their cars, they drive and switch cars at the dorms and Swarthmore College, and they go to a um, fellowship farm, which is this kind of uh, uh, group of cabins and farmhouses um, a ways away from the city. And that's kind of became their safe house. And they very quickly started um, pouring over the docker, the documents and um, as Ralph describes here, um, they were incredibly excited with what they found. It was clear we had hit a gold mine. Mm-hmm. We had, it turned out that funny little office out there, because it was surrounded by all these colleges, mm-hmm. um, that, that, and this little office was investigating all kinds of people involved in the anti-war movement and, um, and, and other political groups on the left. The burglars faced a dilemma, and that was what to do with the stuff, how to get it out into the public. What did it mean? Uh, What did they do? Yeah, as they started kind of uh, grouping the documents into themes, um, they targeted um, three different reporters at three different newspapers, the Washington Post, New York Times, and the LA Times. And then they also targeted two Democratic congressmen um, where they would send the first batch to and they would promise to um, produce more if they reported on it. Um, and what was interesting, they you know came across very obvious, um, troubling documents um, about you know the FBI sending anonymous letters to uh, students who were active in the anti-war movement, that kind of thing. Um, but they also found this one cover sheet um, with the word COINTELPRO, and that was a big mystery at the time. That would later turn into an incredibly big deal. Um, but at the time they didn't know what it meant, but they sent it off. Um, and, um, basically, you know, very little news had come out about the break in. It wasn't, didn't make a big splash. Um, but they waited, um, for, to see what the reaction would be from the different news media. And what is Cointelpro? Well, it stands for counterintelligence program, and it was just this massive decades-long um, program by the FBI where they would surveil and spy on um, American citizens. Um, oftentimes, it was um, 
politically active individuals or groups, the Black Panthers, Martin Luther King Jr., you know, uh, students who were um, parts of different um, anti-Vietnam war actions, and they would monitor them. Um, they would follow them. They would write anonymous letters. And they said in one document, it was kind of a directive from the FBI, where they wanted to create a paranoia that they would think there's an FBI agent behind every mailbox. And that was one of the key documents that was found in this this uh, Pennsylvania office um, that they sent out to the media in the first batch. You write that in, in March 1971, Betty Metzger, a young reporter at the Washington Post, received a package of documents in the Post mailroom. Was that the start of, of the public learning about this? Yes. Um, and it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of, it's crazy. There's a lot of Bay Area connections to this story um, years later. And Betty, uh, many in the Bay Area will know um, she was f- for a long time the chair of the San Francisco State Journalism Department. Um, so he, she has a definite connection to this area. Um, and she it was, you know, speaking just, you know, journalistically, this was like a monumental moment. Um this is before the Pentagon Papers, before WikiLeaks, before Edward Snowden. This is the first time that a, um, a news agency is really hit with the dilemma of we've received stolen records. Um, what do we do with them? Can we publish them? And so she, as she's writing, um, you know, in this March 1971 day, and she says to me that she's willing to go to jail over this. It's that important behind the scenes. Um, the executive editor, Ben Bradley, uh, the publisher of the uh, Washington Post, they're getting calls from the attorney general, John Mitchell, demanding that they kill the story because this is such sensitive documents. And this is a massive moment in um, you know the annals of the free press. And she finishes her story at 6 p.m. that night and goes home not knowing if it's going to appear in tomorrow's paper. And um, Catherine Graham, the the publisher at the time, makes the call at about 10 p.m. that, yes, they will run it, and it goes in the next day's paper. You mentioned the Pentagon Papers and how important this was. Matthias, for the story, you spoke to Betty Metzger about her experience. You also spoke to Daniel Ellsberg, who was the leaker of the Pentagon Papers. What did they say about this, this initial burglary? I mean, as I mentioned, this with all the Bay Area ties, Daniel Ellsberg is a neighbor of ours here uh, in the Bay Area. He lives in Kensington and is still very active. And so, yeah, I spoke to him about it. It's just incredible the timing of these events. Like he had been collecting the Pentagon Papers uh, from his position with the Rand Corporation for a number of years and had already by this point um, sent some documents to um, some politicians, but he hadn't leaked it to the media yet. And so it was interesting to hear from him. Um, he was incredibly interested in how the Washington Post and other uh, newspapers would react to this leak of the FBI files because he had already just days before started leaking his own records uh, to a New York Times reporter. And so, and obviously nothing had been written and nothing would be written until June 1971. And so, you know, here he's seeing two two uh, newspapers sending those FBI records back to the FBI, which was what the LA Times and New York Times did at the time. So that got him concerned. But he also saw the Washington Post uh, publish it. And he was very heartened by that and felt like he um, had seen people who were also following him. And he made a big point to say, like, 
you know, th- at this point in time, the FBI was so revered and also feared, especially uh, J. Edgar Hoover, that it had never really had like any criticism or any real oversight. And he said getting those FBI files was critical. And here he is explaining why. They found it very hard to get anybody outside the movement to think that the FBI could be doing this without documents. And that was, of course, the same as the material of the Pentagon Papers. People simply could not believe without documents that presidents had lied to them uh, and carried out this war absolutely wrong, wrongfully as a kind of executive conspiracy for years and successfully, and that no one had talked, just as inside the FBI. No one had leaked this extremely illegal, you know, unconstitutional program that they were carrying on. All right, fast forward to the present, and COINTELPRO, Matthias, is still this term that people that are activists refer to as sort of dirty tricks by the government that are uh, meant to hurt their cause. Um, You know, there's there's a big question about how much of that still goes on. And then we've had these big leak cases like WikiLeaks that have remained extremely controversial. But Ralph Daniel is living sort of a quiet life in San Rafael. Um, how did you find him and what is he doing now? Yeah, um, you know, Ralph Daniel's a psychologist. He's pretty much retired. He does a, a few things here and there still. Um, and he had private practice uh, for a long time. He's married to a psychologist as well. Um, and you know, they moved to San Rafael to be close to family. Um, and he's, you know, volunteers here and there. Um, he's not nearly, um, as politically active as he was back then, but he definitely leans hard left. Um, and, uh, is, um, uh, you know, keeps, uh, an eye on politics. Um, but we heard about him, um, through, frankly, uh, Betty Metzger and her connection to San Francisco State. And one of our photographers, uh, Carlos Gonzalez, is a graduate um, and remembers uh, her as a teacher and talking about this case in their ethics class, and journalism ethics class. And um, she knew that Ralph had talked to her for her book in 2014 when um, six other of the burglars, um, kind of revealed themselves for the first time when her book came out and he had actually spoken to her for, um, her research purposes, but didn't want his name out. Then he said for family reasons at the time, it wasn't right. And so with the 50th anniversary, he just felt like the time was right. Um, and so Betty kind of made an introduction to us. This is like a week ago before the 50th anniversary. And so we're like, this is a fantastic, fascinating story. We need to jump on it. And we just like literally that night he had, he was leaving for vacation the next morning and Carlos and I at 10 PM talked to him and said, Hey, can we come tomorrow morning before you leave, photograph you, talk to you. And he's like, come at this time. And we raced out there and pieced together the story by phone and, and text ever since. All right. Well, it's a fascinating story. Thanks, Matias. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Matthias Gaffney's story on Ralph Daniel and the FBI robbery in 1971 can be found at sfchronicle.com slash FBI robbery. Thanks to Matthias for coming on, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. <laughs>